Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu. As chair of the uh, Public Lectures Committee, I would like to welcome everyone, and actually thank you, everyone, because of uh, coming tonight in these weather conditions. Um, this is the Walter E. H. Lecture on Public and International Affairs. And uh, this evening, we are fortunate to welcome one of the leading voices in women's rights in the Middle East, Dr. Ziba Mir Hosseini. Uh, she's an anthropologist, author, and filmmaker, specializing on Middle Eastern issues, and in particular on gender, family, and Islamic law. Uh, Dr. Mir Hosseini obtained her PhD in social anthropology in 1980 at Cambridge, and uh, she currently holds a position in that department and also at the Center for Near and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of London. She's also had uh, visiting positions at New York University. Uh, Dr. Mir Hosseini is the author of several books, uh, Marriage on Trial, a study of Islamic law in Iran and Morocco, Islam and Gender, the Religious Debate in Contemporary Iran, and Feminism and the Islamic Republic. She has also co-directed two feature-length documentaries on contemporary issues in Iran. One is called Runaway, and the other is called Divorce Iranian Style. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mir Hosseini. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. And I thank you for braving the weather and for coming to listen to me. My talk is entitled Islamic Law and Feminism, Opening a Dialogue. And I hope to talk not more than 50 minutes and I would look forward to taking your questions and having a debate. In the late 20th century, the Muslim world witnessed the rise of political Islam and simultaneously a huge expansion in both literacy and mass communication. Increasing numbers of Muslims have come to question traditional sources of religious authority and to reread their sacred texts in search for answers to questions new and old. One issue at the forefront of this search has been that of equal rights for women. The centrality of Islamic law in Islamic discourses and the strongly patriarchal ethos embedded in orthodox interpretation of Islamic law have turned women's rights into a major issue for Muslims in modern times. In this lecture, I shall explore recent developments in the Muslim world that have brought about a dialogue between Islamic law on the one hand and feminism on the other. I shall argue that this dialogue is in turn allowing Muslims to rethink in unprecedented ways their understandings of how Islamic law can and should affect their social and political affairs. The argument I shall develop in this lecture is exploratory. 
It ranges widely and is still evolving. At times, I am forced to paint with a quick hand and broad strokes. Discussing a process that is still emerging and contingent is risky, especially in the shadow of a conflict that threatens the security of the whole Muslim world. Upsetting existing balances and likely putting Muslims once more on the defensive, making them more inclined to cling to tradition. But the connections that I see and the trends that are emerging are compelling enough to lead me to take the risk of presenting them here and sharing my arguments with you tonight. If my analysis and my hunches are correct, we will look back at this period as the formative time of a feminism and a secularism that are native to Islam. Both, I shall argue, are the paradoxical and unintended consequences of the rise of political Islam and the Islamist project of return to the Sharia. Before starting the discussion, I would like to note a caveat. Though my approach is that of a trained cultural anthropologist, I do not claim to be a detached observer and analyst. As a Muslim woman from Iran, my personal and intellectual life has been transformed with the rise of political Islam in my own country. Like most Iranian women, I strongly supported the 1979 revolution and believed in the justice of Islam. Yet I soon found out that in an Islamic state committed to enforce what Abdul Karim Surush calls legalistic Islam or Islam Fiqahati, I am a second-class citizen. This has made me realize that the justice of Islam cannot be achieved in modern times without the modernization and democratization of its legal vision. For this, we Muslims need a safe space where we can debate, re-examine our political and legal heritage, and reclaim our Islamic ethical and moral principles. Yet this is not possible. We realize unless the democratic and human rights of Muslims as individuals are respected, a real catch-22. Otherwise, Islam would remain hostage to those who hear only its legalistic voice and reduce it to a set of legal mandates or to political ideology, as the so-called Islamic fundamentalists have done. With this introduction, let me begin with connections that I see between the political Islam and the emergence of a new gender consciousness and discourse among Muslims. Muslim women, like other women in the world, have always been aware of gender discrimination and resisted it. Yet the emergence of a sustained, homegrown feminism was delayed until recently. This delay at least partly reflects the complex relation between demands for equal rights for women and anti-colonial and nationalist discourses of the first part of the 20th century. At a time when feminism, both as a consciousness 
and as a movement was being shaped and making its impact in uh, Europe and North America, as Leila Ahmed has have shown and others have shown, it also functioned to morally justify the attacks on native, in this case Muslim societies, and to support the notion of the comprehensive superiority of Europe. Western authorities, travelers, diplomats regularly reported on the subjection of women in Muslim societies. With the rise of anti-colonialist and nationalist movements, Muslims were thrown on the defensive in relation to traditional gender relations. Muslim women who acquired a feminist consciousness and advocated equal rights for women were under pressure to conform to the priorities of the anti-colonialists and nationalists for whom feminism or advocacy of women's rights was a colonial project and therefore it had to be resisted. Muslim women, in other words, were faced with a painful choice, a choice that Leila Ahmed spoke of in terms of choosing between betrayal and betrayal. They had to choose between their Muslim identity, their faith, and their new gender awareness. But as the 20th century drew to a close, this dilemma disappeared. One neglected and paradoxical consequence of the rise of political Islam in the second half of the century was that it helped to create space, an arena within which Muslim women could reconcile their faith and identity with a struggle for gender equality. I must emphasize here that this did not happen because Islamists were offering a, an egalitarian or a democratic notion of Islam or notion of gender relations. Rather, their very agenda, their very attempt to return to the Sharia and their effort to translate into policy the patriarchal gender notions inherent in Islamic law became a catalyst for a critique of this notion and a spur to women's increased activism. A growing number of women came to see no inherent logical link between Islamic ideals and patriarchy. No contradiction between Islam and feminism and to free themselves from the straitjacket of earlier anti-colonial and nationalist discourses. By the late 1980s, there were clear signs of the emergence of a new consciousness, a new way of thinking, a gender discourse that is feminist in its aspiration and demands, yes, yet it is Islamic in its language and sources of legitimacy. Some versions of this new discourse came to be labeled as Islamic feminism a notion that continues to be contested by the majority of Islamists and some feminists, who see it as antithetical to their respective positions and ideologies, according to which Islamic feminism is a contradiction in terms. What then is Islamic feminism? How does it differ from other feminisms? 
These questions can be best answered by examining the dynamics of Islamic feminism and its potential in the Muslim world. It is difficult and perhaps futile to put the emerging feminist voices in Islam into neat categories and try to generate a definition that reflects the diversity of positions and approaches of the so-called Islamic feminists. Like other feminists, their positions are local, diverse, multiple, and evolving. Many of them have difficulty with the labor and object to being called either Islamic or feminist. They all seek gender justice and equality for women, though they do not always agree on what constitutes justice or equality or the best ways of attaining them. In my view, any definition of Islamic feminism, rather than clarifying, may cloud our understanding of a phenomenon that, in Margot Badran's words, transcends and destroys old binaries that have been constructed. These included polarities between religious and secular, between East and West. To understand the discourse that is still in formation, we might start by considering how its opponents depict it. In other words, the resistance against which it has sought to struggle. Opponents of the Islamic feminist project in Islam fall into three broad categories. Muslim traditionalists, Islamic fundamentalists, and a group that I call secular fundamentalists. Muslim traditionalists resist any change in what they hold to be eternally valid ways, sanctioned by an unchanging sharia. Islamic fundamentalists, a very wide category, are those who seek to change current practice by a return to an earlier, purer, imaginary version of the Sharia. Secular fundamentalists, who can be just as dogmatic and as ideological as religious fundamentalists, deny that any Sharia-based law or social practice can be just or equal. Though adhering to very different discourses and scholarly traditions and following very different agendas, all these opponents of feminist project in Islam share one thing in common, and that is an essentialist and non-historical understanding of Islamic law and gender. They fail to recognize that assumptions and laws about gender in Islam as in any other religion, are socially constructed and thus open to negotiation and historically changing. They resist readings of Islamic law that treat it like any other system of law and disguise their resistance by mystification and misrepresentation. Selective in their arguments and illustrations, the three kinds of opponents resort to the same kind of sophistry. For example, seeking to close discussion by producing Quranic verses or Hadith, the tradition sayings of the Prophet, taken out of context. Muslim traditionalists and fundamentalists do this as means of silencing other internal voices. 
secular fundamentalists do the same, but in the name of progress and science, and as means of showing the misogyny of Islamic texts. Ignoring both the similar attitudes to women in other religious scriptures and the context of the text, as well as the existence of alternative texts. In doing so, they end up essentializing and perpetuating difference and reproduce a crude version of the Orientalist narrative of Islam. What is often missing in these narratives is a recognition that gender inequality in the world, in the old world, was assumed and that perceptions of women in Christian and Jewish texts are not that different from those of Islamic texts. What transformed women's situation in the West was not Christianity, but new conditions, new social conditions that were shaped by and in turn shaped new political and socioeconomic discourses and new popular understanding of Christianity. It is against this backdrop that activities of the so-called Islamic feminists should be reviewed. By both uncovering a hidden history and rereading textual sources, they are proving that the inequalities embedded in Islamic law are neither manifestations of a divine will, nor cornerstones of an irredeemably backward social system, but human constructions. They also are showing how such unequal construction go contrary to the very essence of divine justice as revealed in the Quran, and how Islam's sacred texts have been tainted by the ideology of their interpreters. For example, men's unilateral right to divorce, known as talaq, and to polygyny, were not granted to them by God. They show, but by Muslim jurists. They are juristic constructs that follow from the way that early Muslim jurists conceptualized and defined marriage as a contract of sale patterned after the contract, uh, as a contract of exchange patterned after a contract of sale, which, by the way, sale has been the model for most contracts in Islamic law, marriage being one of them. The majority of these feminist scholars have focused their energy on the field of Quranic interpretation and have successfully uncovered the Quran's egalitarian message. The genesis of gender inequality in Islamic law, these scholars tell us, lies in an inner contradiction between the ideals of Islam and the social norms of the early Muslim cultures. While the ideals of Islam call for freedom, justice, and equality, Muslim norms and structures in the formative years of Islamic law impeded their realization. Instead, these social norms were assimilated into Islamic jurisprudence through a set of theological, legal, and social theories and assumptions. Salient among these propositions are Women are created of men and for men. Women are inferior to men. Women need to be protected. Men are guardians and protectors of women. 
marriage is a contract of exchange and male and female sexuality differ and the latter is dangerous to the social order. These assumptions and theories are nowhere more evident than in the rules that define the formation and termination of marriage, through which gender inequalities are sustained in present-day Muslim societies. In my own work on marriage and divorce, I have tried to engage with these juristic assumptions to show how the science of Islamic jurisprudence became the prisoner of its own legal theories, which in time came to bypass the Quranic call for justice and freedom. Let me now return to the second unintended consequences of the rise of political Islam. That is setting in train a a movement to secularize the notion of law in Islam. I will explore this movement in the case of Iran, where one version of the Islamist vision was realized in 1979, when a popular revolution ended 2,500 years of monarchy and gave birth to an Islamic republic, a peculiar and unprecedented combination of theocracy and democracy. Religious and political authority converged and the state embarked on a fierce process of Islamization. Now, less than three decades later, those who led the 1979 revolution are engaged in a bitter struggle over its legacy. It is an argument over the role of religion in politics and the proper scope of Islamic law in defining social norms and regulating personal relations. There are two main camps, conservatives, who insist on keeping the ideological discourse of the revolution intact, and reformists who want to reconcile it with discourses of democracy and human rights. Today, Iran is going through a transition, the outcome of which may prove as significant for the Muslim world as the 1979 revolution itself. The transition got underway with the unexpected victory of Mohammad Khatami in 1997 presidential elections. This unleashed a popular reformist movement that is trying to bring about a gradual withdrawal of religion from its fusion with state authority, a shift from the theocratic towards democratic basis of the Islamic Republic. Why and how is this theocracy producing its own antithesis? There is a host of factors at work that I cannot elaborate here, except to say that the major factors are encapsulated in the tension between theocratic and democratic principles and elements, a tension that is inherent in the very quest for an Islamic state in modern times, a tension that is really inherent in the very name of an Islamic republic. What is usually held to define a state as Islamic is adherence to and implementation of the Sharia, held up as the perfect law embodying the justice of Islam. 
But this, in practice, has amounted to enforcing a dress code for women and applying an outdated patriarchal and tribal model of social relations through courts dealing with penal cases and familial disputes. In Iran, the results have been so much out of touch with social realities, with the Iranian sense of justice, with women's aspiration, that both clerics and lay people have come to have been forced to rethink their notion of the Sharia as an immutable body of law to redefine their relationship with the Sharia. This is nowhere more evident than in the area of family law, which is the most developed field of classical Islamic jurisprudence, where the boundaries between sacred and temporal are most blurred. Islamists claim family law as the foundation of the ideal Islamic society. The provisions of the Quran were most abundant and explicit in regard to personal status and family relations, which are thus more closely intertwined with the sacred in the law than other fields of social life. One of the early communiques issued by Ayatollah Khomeini's office on 26th February 1979 barely two weeks after the collapse of the ancien regime, of the Shah's regime, announced the dismantling of family protection law. This was the law which contained the reforms of family law in Pahlavi regime. These reforms were enacted in the 1960s. Sharia provisions for marriage and divorce were now reinstituted. The family protection law had abolished men's right to talaq, that is unilateral exercise of divorce, restricted their right to polygamy, and placed men and women more and less on the same footing in terms of access to divorce and custody rights. The Revolutionary Council restored the Sharia in order to protect the family and realize women's high status in Islam. That is what all say that we do this for the sake of women, to give them their high status in Islam. But this was not how women perceived and experienced the changes. In October 1980, when I first started, started attending the Tehran branches of the new family courts, now presided over by Islamic judges, women who came to court were astonished to learn that their husbands could now divorce them without first securing their cons consent. Some remained incredulous and would ask more than one judge, one judge, can he really divorce me if I don't agree? Is this what the Sharia says? In 1985, when I resumed my court attendance, Although no longer incredulous, women were insistent on voicing their discontent. Some used every occasion to remind the Islamic judge of his role as custodian of the Sharia and of the injustice of a system which could afford them no protection. It was common to hear women asking the judge, is this how Islam honors women? Is this the justice of Islam that he can take another wife? 
What will become of me and my children? To these questions, the judges had no answer, especially when a man insisted on exercising his right to divorce a wife who was entirely dependent on him, with no other source of income and nowhere else to go. Some judges, though not certainly all of them, experienced a moral dilemma. Not only did they have to witness the plight of women on a daily basis, they could not help but feel implicated themselves. The Islamic judges in whose courts I sat in the 1980s never failed to remind me that I had chosen the wrong place to learn about the Sharia. They used to tell me that you should go to the seminaries, read jurisprudential texts, and discuss them with the ulama. The courts have nothing to teach you on the Sharia. In 1997, when I returned to Tehran courts with Kim Longinato to make a documentary film about divorce, there was little trace of the idealism I had encountered in the 1980s. Meanwhile, the negative effects of the enforcement of the Sharia law had created such havoc in family life, such an uproar among women, that almost all the reforms that had been dismantled overnight by that single communique from Ayatollah Khomeini's office had surely but slowly been brought back. This was done through a series of legislative measures and procedural device whose spirit and juristic logic was, in a nutshell, to protect and reward those women who presented no overt challenge to the patriarchal ethos of Islamic law, as defined by Muslim jurists. To exercise his so-called right to divorce, a man had now either to obtain his wife's consent or to compensate her. He just couldn't divorce her like this. The 1992 amendments to divorce laws enable a court to place a monetary value on woman's housework and to force the husband to pay her odrat or mess, which literally we can translate as exemplary wages. Of course, provided the divorce is not initiated by the wife or is not caused by any fault of hers. Far from producing the intended results, that is, a generation of docile wives, these legislative moves have exposed the gap between the juristic assumptions through which marriage is defined in Islamic law and marriage as lived and experienced today. They have also become a bargaining chip in the hands of women, many of whom now use it effectively in the courts. In the clip that I shall show now, we meet a couple presenting their case to the judge in a Tehran divorce court. The husband has requested a divorce on the grounds of his wife's failure to comply with her marital duties. He had already been to the police accusing her of disobedience and having telephone relationships. Okay. <laughs> 
شما باید کار کنید که شما جذب بشن در زندگی و از این تنابش مسئله حالا دارم های شما دارم های شما نظر میده و الان حتی شما رو به میرسونن این برای این است که اگر این محمدرشون در مطارکه شما انجام شد تازه بعد از طلاق هم که سیغش جاری شد سه مورد عرود رو در یک منظر با هم باید شما زندگی بکنید نمیشه دیگه چون طلاق رشیت باید با هم باشید اگر شما نخواست باشید طلاق خوالی میتونید بگیرید که از اون باشید طلاق خوالی میتونید همه شد بین نمیده کنون ست تومنش هزار تومنش میرخشید اینجا طلاق خوالی همه شد بازمین سر بین باشید با هزار تومن با کنون ست تومن میتونید شما بعض کنید و بعد طلاق خوالی در جاش کنید و آمد خوزو باشید اون دیگه مقابل بعدیش Thank you. The judge is speaking of the judge is speaking the language of the jurisprudential text on marriage and divorce. 
His statements have nothing to do with realities of contemporary Tehran life and makes no sense to this middle-aged so-called traditional Iranian woman. Imagine what kind of sense they make to the younger generation of women who have grown up in the Islamic Republic. This generation has been raised on a diet of revolution and protest. These young women, young women like Ziba, whom we meet in the next two scenes, recognize rights for themselves. Above all, the right to question old wisdoms. They have learned to turn the patriarchal mandates on their head. The first scene we meet Ziba in the same court, in front of the same judge, where she's trying to get her husband's consent to a divorce on her terms. Having in the previous session failed to establish valid grounds for divorce, this time she has brought her husband to court for causing her bodily harm. But as we see, this is a ploy to get him to negotiate the term of their divorce, making us behind the camera, as well as the judge, parties to the negotiation. Next clip, please.
Ziba wants to keep a portion of her marriage gift, Mehr. This is an integral part of an Islamic marriage contract and consists of a sum of money or any valuable that the man pledges to his wife on marriage or on the event of divorce. In Iran, women rarely get any portion of the mayor stipulated in their marriage contract, though legally they can demand it whenever they want to. In practice, they have to give it up in return for their husband's consent to divorce or in exchange for custody rights of the children. As a Persian saying has it, Mehram halal janamazad, literally, let my mehr be yours, but my life be free. But Ziba sees mehr as her right and is not willing to give up. The next scene is a mediation. Since 1979, when men's divorce rights were restored to them, before issuing a divorce, the court has required a couple to go through a mediation process, during which two mediators, one chosen by each party, try to reconcile them. And if they fail, they submit a report to the court, which can influence the divorce settlement. Ziba and Bahman have chosen their respective uncles as mediators. But there are other family members present. Ziba is sitting next to her uncle. Bahman is sitting next to Ziba's father. Could we have the next clip, please? مهریم چهار میلیون نیم بوده نقد چهارده تا سکه است درسته؟ چهارده تا سکه رو میبخشم اون نیم میلیونم از اون بر چهار حالا شما چی نظری میدید؟ هرچند نمیشه روش قیمتی گذاشت رو مهریه من هیچ قیمتی نمیشه روش گذاشت من نظرم این بود گفتم اگر اومد زندگی بکنه بفرد نمیومد من آدار بیرفت و بیرمی نیستم منم به عنوان یه نفر که ایشونو بازید کنیم من نمیتونیم منم آزارم کمکش میکنم میکنم خانهشم کمک میکنم یعنی به خاطر گروه روح ما شما خانواده شده کمکت میکنم میکردم من بالای دار برم زن بهمن دیگه نمیشم اینم در حالت شوهر من نیست یعنی اگه بخوای بجدانی الان کمک کنی شوهر من نیست من هم به این نامهرم اینم هم به من نامهرم الان که من در حالت بهریه نظرم شما هم نظرتون ایشون میگه من از باز زندگی میکنم نه علاقه بس دارم نه مهری تو دلم میگه از خود دارم خب این دلیل داره چرا نمیخواد تو دارم میگه دولش ایشون من میگه من نظر خامل پاک باشم بله من نظرم با انا خواه منظرم من کار نشد حالا شد نظر مهری هاشون رو بگم شما خود بازبون خود در من اوما بکن من نیخواه برای من چکی بشتم من دابت رو آشکانو میگه شما نگفتی یه دارم بارا تره چه Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Far from creating marital harmony, the return to the Sharia in Iran has proved a major cause of marital breakdown and soaring rate of uh, divorce. The same can be said with respect to other areas of law, in particular penal codes. The argument that I want to develop here is that the transformation of Islamic law from a scholarly discipline whose relevance was confined to the seminaries into the state ideology by, backed by a modern state machinery sets into motion a process that is bound to bring its secular, the secularization of concept of law in Islam. In the end, the very slogan of return to the Sharia from which Islamists draw their legitimacy and power when they are in opposition becomes their Achilles heel when they are in power. By the late 1980s, the ideological, theological, theoretical, and practical problems brought by the experience of administrating pre-modern interpretation of the Sharia in Iran became the impetus for the formation of a new discourse. The main architect of this new discourse is Abdul Karim Surush, whose interpretive epistemological theory of the evolution of religious knowledge known as the contraction and expansion of Sharia posed a serious challenge to both traditional and ideological constructions of the Sharia. Surush made a distinction between religion, deen, and religious knowledge, marafat-e-dini, and argued that whereas the first is sacred and immutable, the second, religious knowledge, including Islamic law and Islamic jurisprudence, is human and evolves in time as a result of forces external to religion itself. Referred as new religious thinking, this discourse became the intellectual backbone of the reformist movement that emerged in 1997. It is part of a trend of thought that remained dormant during the first decade of Islamic Republic when it was engaged with a war with Iraq. Its advocates display a refreshing pragmatic vigor and a willingness to engage with non-religious perspectives. They do not reject an idea simply because it is Western, nor do they see Islam as a blueprint with an inbuilt program of action for social, economic, and political problems of the Muslim world. They contend that Islam, that human understanding of Islam is feasible, that Islam tenets can be interpreted to encourage both pluralism and democracy, and that Islam allows change in the face of time and space and experience. What is new about the new religious thinking is not the argument that Islamic law or jurisprudence is temporal, which was argued by Al-Ghazali as early as 11th century nor is it the attempt to consolidate conceptions of Islam and modernity as compatible, which has been the aim of all Muslim reformers since late 19th century. What is new is the political context within which these ideas are now shaped and operate. That is the experience of living under a theocracy at the end of the 20th century. 
It is this experience that has forced both the religious intellectuals and ordinary people alike to rethink the notions of sacred and mundane in the Sharia. It is not that the Sharia is losing its sanctity or people are turning away from Islam. Rather, the state's ideological use of the Sharia and its penetration into the private lives of individuals have brought home the urgent need to separate it from the state. Events in Iran are still unfolding, and it remains to be seen whether the new religious thinkers, the intellectual backbone of the reformist movement, will succeed in translating their vision of Islam into political reality. At present, they are locked in a fierce battle with their conservative opponents, which is shaking the very foundation on which the Islamic Republic rests. But irrespective of the outcome of this battle, the process of secularization of Islamic law has reached the point of no return. The Islamic Republic has given Sharia a new substance, a new and new functions, and radically transformed the connections between state power, legal institution, religious authority, and moral norms. The reformists have met with many political setbacks and have so far failed to bring tangible changes in the structure of power or to honor many of their election promises, including that of redressing women's inequalities in law. The anti-reformist camp has managed to frustrate many of the legislative moves of the Sixth Parliament, formed in June 2000 following a landslide reformist victory, but not with impunity. Rejection of reformist bills, such as one raising the minimum age of marriage and expanding divorce and custody rights, has not only brought to the surface anachronisms and contradictions in orthodox interpretation of Islamic law, but has generated a public debate in the press and among the women's groups. All these have demystified both the power games that are conducted in a religious language and the instrumental use of Islamic law, law to justify autocratic rule. This is central to the agenda of the reformist movement. That is, to change the terms of reference of Islamic discourses. This can only be done by separating Islam from despotism and Islamic law from patriarchy and absolutism. Let me conclude by suggesting some answers to two questions implicit in my argument. First, can Islamic law admit an an equal construction of gender rights? If so, secondly, how and through what means and processes? I explored the first question in the context of the emerging feminist voices in Islam. The gist of my argument there was that by advocating a brand of feminism that takes Islam as a source of its legitimacy, the new feminist voices in Islam have effectively challenged the hegemony of orthodox interpretations of Islamic law. Such, such a challenge, I argued, was made possible, even inevitable, by the Islamists' very project of an ideological construction of Islam and a return to the Sharia, 
and the imposition of anachronistic jurisprudential constructions of gender relations. This has inadvertently paved the way for the emergence of a new gender discourse that is questioning the legitimacy of the views of those who until now have spoken in the name of Islam. This discourse is in a unique position to bring about a much-needed paradigm shift in Islamic law and also in the politics of Islamic law. This is so because it exposes the inequalities embedded in Islamic law not as a divine manifestation, but as a construction by male jurists. This has important epistemological and political consequences. Epistemological, because if it is taken to its logical conclusion, then it can be argued that some rules that until now have been claimed as Islamic and part of the Sharia are in fact only the views and perceptions of some Muslims and are social practices and norms that are neither sacred nor immutable but human and changing. Political, because it can both free Muslims from taking a defensive position and enable them to go beyond all jurisprudential wisdoms in search of new questions and new answers. I explored the second question, that is, the process involved in changing Islamic law by considering Iran's experience of the enforcement of Islamic law through the machinery of a modern state. Two decades of this experience gave rise to a popular reformist movement that has been trying to separate the institution of the religion from that of the state and to forge a democratic and pluralistic political culture. At the heart of this struggle lies one of the main ideological battles fought in Iran today, over two notions of Islam and two ways of relating to its sacred text. One is a legalistic and absolutist Islam, which is premised on the notion of duty as understood and constructed in Islamic jurisprudence, and makes little concession to contemporary realities and aspirations of Muslims. The other is a pluralistic and tolerant Islam, which is premised on the notion of right, as advocated by modern democratic ideals. The Islamic revolution in Iran led to, to the establishment of the first and perhaps the last theocracy of the modern age. It would be one of the history's sharpest ironies if the most lasting legacy of the Iranian revolution were the full separation of state and religion, an eventuality that scholars like Ernest Gellner argued was unlikely to happen in the Muslim world. Both Islamic feminism and the reformist movement in Iran are still in their formative phases and their fortunes are tied to political developments all over the Muslim world and global politics. But it is important to remember two things which, which, uh, with which I would end. First, Islamic law, like other systems of law, is reactive in the sense that it reacts to social practices and people's experiences. It has both the potential and the legal mechanisms to deal with women's demand for equality, 
We must not forget that most often legal theory follows practice. That is to say, when social reality changes, then social pressure will effect change in the law. Secondly, there is a theoretical concord between the egalitarian spirit of Islam and the feminist quest for justice and a just world. It is perhaps this that makes the feminist project in Islam so unsettling to conventional views and Western interests in the Muslim world and beyond. Thank you. Questions? Yes, we have one there. The uh, debate in Iran has been going on for some time, and one side of the debate has all the power, and it's curious to me that yet the debate continues and is allowed to continue. Could, could you comment on that? Mm. They have uh, uh, power in the sense of having the coercive power of the state. But power also comes from people, and the legitimacy comes from people. They don't have that. And that is why the whole struggle continues. If they had the power, they would have staged a coup. They would have done it. But they know very well that they cannot sustain it and do it. So their power is a power which comes from the naked force of the state and violence. But it's a kind of power that cannot run a country. You cannot really run a country on that basis. So the debate is going to continue for a long time. And I think the struggle for democracy, if you look at any society or any period of time, it comes through these powers, through this um, conflict. And so it is going on. It seems to me that there's um, a Malaysian form of, of Islam, and it seems to be how would you contrast how women's rights are there versus how that is in the Middle Eastern form of it? It seems to me I was watching something on Frontline a little while ago, and some of the women there were talking about that they had just recently acquired the right to divorce in court, and that it seemed like it was a little bit more progressive than perhaps some other things I've seen. Yes, uh, there are different Islams and different practices, and Islam takes the co uh, color of the culture in which it manifests itself. So the Asian Islam in Malaysia and that side always have been very different from uh, Middle Eastern. There can be lessons where, you know, they have their own struggles as well and nah, they don't have everything. So that really shows that Islam as a religion and also Islamic law is not monolith. There are different interpretations. It interacts with the social uh, structure, and there are differences. But on the whole, and Malaysia also is a much more tolerant society than many Middle Eastern countries. Therefore, there is more room for... Uh, progressive arguments there and more tolerance on the part of the government. So the state structure is also his, here is very important. Uh, 
Yes, but then we don't have to go exactly about what the law is and what the state is imposing at the law. as law. Because in Iran, you know, in fact, women have much more power than women in Indonesian society. And they are much more active, and their family structure is really in a way that validates women. So legally, they don't have much right, but socially they do. So law is one aspect, interpretation of Islam is one aspect, and the social structure is another. But definitely there are lessons to learn from that, and the kind of progressive interpretation that you have both in Malaysia to lesser extent than in Indonesia are lessons that all Muslims can learn from. Yes, there's a question here. Um, could you talk about um, the ways in which the, this debate has affected the actual laws, for instance, the recent changes in the divorce laws in Iran, and also, um, also could, you, could you address um, laws that have been passed by the um, Khatami and the uh, progressive Majlis but have not passed the, the higher council? Um, and um, are there laws on the table about women being judges and uh, the women's right to rule the state? The debates on women's rights in Iran came to the surface in the late 1980s after the end of war with Iraq. And before that, it was actually a taboo subject to talk about women's rights or feminism. But it gradually came to the surface. And one reason was it for was the political system open, the war with Iraq was finished. And also the Islamic Republic at the very beginning went through a very undemocratic totalitarian phase, which affected the women's rights as well. And feminism or any idea of equality for women was rejected as a Western idea. But once you reject an idea, once you reject a discourse, you have to engage with it. And by engaging with it, then that discourse sets the parameters of the debate for you. Therefore, Islamic Republic ideologically rejected feminism. But in the process of rejecting feminism and Western uh, feminist discourses had to engage with it and therefore had to adopt some of its premises, but in an Islamic language. So that was one reason for it. Another reason was that generational women who were very idealistic at the beginning of the revolution, very devout Islamic activists, they really thought that when Islam becomes in power and the law of Sharia is the law of land, everything would be all right. So by the late 1980s, they themselves were disillusioned. They, they came to question their own practices. And these were women who played a role in suffocating other women's voices. But by that time that they came to realize that their own voices were being suffocated. So a kind of uh, movement from women's uh, Islamic groups were uh, emerged. And at the same time, in the 1980s, the Islamic Republic did not allow or tolerate any other discourses which was outside the religion. So everything has to be framed within the religious terms. So that, again, opened the space. 
And women groups, and especially women in the parliament, lobbied as women's, uh, for women's rights. Because also the culture of the parliament, the culture of the society was that they saw women who were representatives, deputies in the parliament as representing only women. The idea of gender segregation was so much that women the deputies were supposed only think and talk about women's issues. Although their numbers were few, but they became a strong lobby within the structure of power for fighting for women's rights. And their constituencies were women. Women were coming to them, and they had to respond to their own constituencies. So there were certain dynamics to do with that. And in fact, it is curious, because before Khatami came into office, not into power, because he hasn't come to power yet, and the parliament and the clerics and the government passed many laws which really brought back all the reforms that they abandoned. But since he came to power, all the laws which have been passed by the parliament has been rejected by the conservatives. Because for a law, for a bill in Iran to become a law, it has to be uh, after being approved by the parliament, it has to be approved by the Council of Guardian, which consists of six jurists appointed by the supreme leader. And these jurists are very conservatives. And also the struggle between the reformists and conservatives, one of the main casualties have been women's rights. But it opened the door for debate, because once you reject these laws, you have to provide arguments for it. And I give you one example that one of the first bills that the parliament uh, introduced was to get rid of the discriminations for on the area of education for women. Iranian male could get a scholarship and go abroad to study, but Iranian women could not, unless they were married to a man who had the scholarship. So there was that discrimination. And the parliament introduced a bill asking for equality on that. The Council of Guardians rejected it. In the Friday uh, uh, sermon, the head of the Council of Guardians argued, and then the um, Parliament answered back, and it became all debate about that. And basically, they lost in the debate, because they could not justify on the Islamic terms that women do not have the same right to education. It really goes against everything. And at the end, their argument was that the parliament should not have introduced this bill in the first place because it sets people against Islam, their own version of Islam. So their answer is for closing the debate. And uh, something that Iranian women have total consensus on it is the issue of divorce and child, the woman's right to child custody. So once uh, the par another bill that the parliament has reduced, uh, in, had introduced and it has been vetoed uh, so far has been giving more rights to women in these matters. And these have been rejected more or less. So it just opens the area for debate and the struggle goes on. See, we have one question there. Um, when placed in chronological and cultural context, almost everything in the Quran can be justified. And more than that, it seems very sensible. However, unlike Islamic jurisprudence, which is a human construction, the Quran is considered divine and timeless, and it's meant to be a source of guidance for all people in all times. Um, given that, when you're talking not about 
um, Islamic jurisprudence, but about the Quran itself. How can we reconcile, how can Muslims reconcile some of the legal mandates in the Quran with a modern setting without um, compromising the idea that the Quran is timeless and meant for all people in all times? It's one of the areas of work that um, feminist scholars have been done. And as I said, most of their work have been focused on Quranic interpretation. And using the modern hermeneutics and a feminist hermeneutics and reading the Quran f- f- uh, not like the traditionalists, which take the Quran as a literary, t- uh, have a literal understanding of text. Because in the Quran, uh, each uh, verse has a context. And there is a part of the Quranic studies which is known as the occasions of revelation. Why a verse was revealed? It was in answer to what question, to what circumstances. And most of the laws, almost without exception, anything which has to do with the social and political side are among those uh, verses in the Quran which are known either to be of reformative, uh, to be reforming, or either to be uh, verses that sanctioned the existing practice. They were not really something that Islam as a religion brought. For instance, uh, patriarchy and men's right to divorce existed. It was not something that the Prophet or the Quran introduced. It tried to reform it and it tried to adjust it or things. So there is within the science of Islamic uh, Quranic interpretations, there are ways of reading at the text and the context and also Quran is an oral text and it should be treated as an oral text. And uh, this is actually one of the main arguments of the traditionalists and also the fundamentalists, Islamians. The Quran says this, that is the end of it. But it needs to be interpreted, it needs to be in the context, and also we understand any sacred text uh, through our own knowledge. And Abdul Karim Surush has a very interesting saying. It says that, you know, we must, it depends on the kind of question that we ask from the text. The text is silent and we make it speak to us by asking questions. If you are a mere, uh, a misogynist, an anti-woman, of course you are going to ask a kind of question which ends up getting those of answers. And if you have a different understanding, if you have a different world view, then your questions would be different. And also if Muslims claim that the Quran is eternal and has answers to all questions, it has to have answers for the questions of modern times. So change is one part of it as well. And there is also another debate that they have that the ruling ideas in the Quran and the rulings are divided into two Parts, those which are essential and those which are accidental. Essentials are those which are uh, immutable, but accidentals are those which are historical. And this division has been done, and this has always existed. It is not a new. Let's see, one, one last question. One last question over there, the end. 
Uh, are you suggesting then that uh, the reformists believe that the Quran needs to be changed? Is that what you're implying? That the reformists believe that the Quran needs to be changed according to modern times? No, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is our understanding of the Quran changes. And if you look at uh, Islamic interpretation, tafsir, the tafsir, for instance, that um, somebody like in the 20th century had is a totally different from a tafsir that somebody else in the 15th century had. So our understanding of the text changes. As I said, the text is silent and immutable, but the way that we understand it, the way that we relate to it, is changing. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>